Welcome back to the complete history of coffee, episode 5, Coffee Exorcism. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. To start, here's a preview of what's going on in our members' episodes. Welcome to the Complete History of Tea, Members Only Episode 1. I'm your host, Ara Zapper. Today, I'm drinking a cascara tea. Cascara is Spanish for husk, and it is the fruit of the coffee seed, and is brewed to make a coffee cherry tea. So, let me start by tasting it. What's really interesting is when I'm trying this, I'm not actually tasting coffee as much. Um, it kind of reminds me of black tea i would say overall um there's not a whole lot of smell um it has a little bit of a fruity smell to it um not much of a fruity taste though actually it's a very subtle um light tea almost like a white tea actually The earliest evidence we have of tea comes from the tomb of one of China's emperors from the Han Dynasty. Yet we find physical remains of tea, which date back to around 1800 years ago. The earliest known mention of tea in the written record comes from China from around 761 CE, from a work called The Classic of Tea. There are legends of tea which can be found in mythology, namely the discovery of tea by the mythological emperor god, Shenong. Shenong was said to have ruled before the first recorded dynasty of China, predating the introduction of writing to China, with writing entering China by at least 1250 BCE. In one version of the legend, Shenong has one of his servants prepare him a drink of boiling water. A tea leaf, however, falls into the water and is steeped in the boiling water. Unaware, he then tries the infusion, finding it to be refreshing and causing him to feel invigorated. In a second, more mythological version, Shenong has transparent skin, which allows him to see inside of his body and view the effects of tea on his body. Testing out various herbs, 72 to be exact, he tries tea for the first time. This was a lucky thing too, as some of the herbs he had ingested were toxic, and the tea helped to clear out the toxins from his body. As we see from these legends, already at this early point in tea's history, we begin to see tea used as part of a traditional Chinese medicine. In a final version of the legend, the emperor, who now has normal, non-see-through skin, created an agricultural society in China and cataloged over 365 types of medical plants. While on a botanical expedition, he fell ill, apparently having digestive issues or possible nausea. This version is similar to the first version in that he boils some water, this time while resting under the shade of a tree. If you'd like to hear the rest, head over to Patreon and search for The Complete History Podcast Series or by finding a link to our Patreon on our social media pages. There once was a great goddess of coffee named Caffeina. 
Rome did not want its people worshipping goddesses, and so made a ban on it. One of Caffeina's worshippers, Julianus, continued to pray to the goddess, even after goddess worship was being persecuted against. Julianus often struggled to worship the goddess after his long day at work, so he prayed to the goddess to show him a way to stay awake through his long devotions to her. In response, he came across dancing goats while walking one day. He asked the goat herder why the goats were frolicking in such an unusual manner. The goat herder pointed to a shrub with red berries on it. He then decided to try some of these berries and began to dance with the goats. Taking the beans home, he boiled them and began making a drink out of it. By drinking coffee every night, he was able to stay awake through his prayers to the goddess. While fascinating, the story is not only fictitious in a literary sense, but also in a historical context. The myth of the Roman goddess did not exist even two decades ago, and the man Julianus was said to have become King Julianus II, a name which does not belong to any king in history. While stories like this may seem irrelevant to history, they actually have the potential to become important legends within a given society. Let us set the stage for coffee history in Europe. The six major European players in the newly expanded coffee economy were Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, France, England, and the Habsburg Empire, or Austria. The first place in Europe to obtain coffee outside of those under Ottoman control was Venice, Italy in 1575, followed by the Netherlands, England, France, and finally Vienna, Austria. However, the first coffee house opened in Europe was by England, then the Netherlands, France, Germany, Italy, and finally Austria. This shows Italy was introduced to coffee early on, yet took its time developing its first coffee houses, while England was slow to receive coffee for the first time, but managed to establish coffee houses before these other five European countries. More interesting is out of these six countries, only three of them developed coffee production in their own colonies, and of the three, the Netherlands was the first, followed by France, and finally England. The Netherlands then was early to try coffee and export it, France was late to the party, but wanted to outproduce everyone else, and England seems to have been more relaxed and not only trying coffee, but also preferred to consume it in coffee houses than working the road abroad. Europeans were instantly enamored with this new oriental drink. This, along with attempting to free it from its former Islamic hold, led to widespread popularity. As with many things in the modern era, Europe attempted to rewrite coffee's history. Similar to the story of Caffeina, examples of this include an Italian Pietro de la Vela, arguing coffee to have been Nepenthe from the Odyssey, a potion made by Helen, which banishes troubles from one's mind. Sir Henry Blunt, an Englishman, believed coffee was the black broth drunk by Spartans before battle. In essence, what occurred here was the same as what took place in Yemen, being the story of coffee was made into a sort of propagandized legend. Yemen created a mythological history of coffee to help assert control over coffee, much like Europe began doing in the 17th century, 
and an attempt to claim coffee as their own. Similar to Islamic society, Europe also struggled with coffee's legal and religious status. As we mentioned last time, around 1600, Pope Clement VIII was requested by his court to denounce coffee, but insisted on trying it before reaching his verdict. After trying the drink, he decided to baptize it to claim it for Christendom and seize it from the devil. Historians are unsure if this was a literal baptism or an exorcism. Jonathan Morse questions the story altogether, so it is possible even this is a sort of propagandized legend itself. In any case, once the Pope supposedly declared the drink safe for consumption, Catholics began drinking it, and soon after, Protestants also took up the drink, making it a widespread drink throughout Europe. While Pope Clement's defense of coffee may be more legend than fact, it has become a popular story in coffee's history. Much like Clement, last episode we discussed the story of Jersey Kultzitzki, or George Franz Kultzitzki, as he is also known. He was said to have first introduced coffee to Europe after the epic battle, which also brought us the croissant. However, coffee was introduced to Vienna, capital of the Habsburg Empire, in 1665 by a Turkish delegation. The delegation was sent to ratify a peace treaty and brought with them two people to prepare coffee. The following year, after the delegation left, there was a thriving coffee trade in Austria. The coffee trade was primarily ran by Armenians, such as Johannes Diodato, who opened the first Viennese coffee house in 1685. This would seem to contradict the narrative of Kultzitsky, with this delegation from Turkey arriving almost two decades before the Battle of Vienna. It did, however, encourage coffee in Vienna by dressing in Turkish attire and hauling brewed coffee around with him, petitioning authorities to allow him to open his own coffee shop. Shortly after his death in 1697, the licensed guild, der or Brotherhood of Coffee Makers, was established. They were the ones who began adding milk to coffee, leading customers to use a color chart to determine the amount of milk they wanted in their coffee. While many prefer their coffee with cream or con leche today for taste, there is a potential extension of this new trend. An argument has been made that some Europeans may have wanted their coffee with milk to transform it from a black drink of the Muslims to a white drink for the Christian world. By the early 1700s, coffee houses were all over Vienna as a popular place for social and intellectual interactions. The first coffee house in Vienna, if we take Karl Tepley's word for it, was Johannes Diodato in 1685. Interestingly, Diodato was Armenian but was employed as a spy by the Viennese imperial court. His coffee house was similar to a speakeasy, although predating them. His establishment was not well known and only allowed entrance to those who knew the password to get in. Being Armenian, he held an advantage over others in Austria because he was already familiar with Turkish coffee making. 
The reason Viennese coffee houses are so important to our story is because of their cultural significance. They welcomed great thinkers, scientists, authors, and artists alike, such as Alfred Adler. They were also places of political conversation, seeing the likes of Leon Trotsky. Viennese-style coffee houses sprang up around Europe and even appeared as far away as Shanghai to accommodate tourists. These Viennese-style coffee houses were similar to cafes today, with waiters serving people water with their coffee, as well as having card games, pool tables, and newspapers available for customers. Although it was not until the 1720s when the Kramerschess Coffee House opened in Vienna that we see the introduction of newspapers and coffee houses. We also see alcohol and warm foods being served during this period in Austrian coffee houses. With all of this in mind, we know coffee actually reached Italy first, through the port city of Venice. There are some interesting parallels between the Black Death and this new black brew, with both coming over from the east to Europe through Italy and then rapidly spreading across the continent, although with coffee being far more enjoyable and less lethal. In the first half of the 17th century, coffee was used by Europeans as an exotic medicine for the upper class. Within 50 years, coffee took off as a popular beverage in Europe, being sold by Italian street vendors known as Aquas de Trasola, who sold things such as lemonade, chocolate, liquor, and even coffee. The Venetian ambassador to Istanbul in 1585 informed the Senate of a hot black Turkish drink made from a seed called cave, which caused people difficulty falling asleep after consumption. A decade prior to this, coffee appears in Venice in 1575 as we have evidence for the use of coffee equipment by a Turkish merchant in the city, and by 1624, coffee was being shipped in as a medical product and sold by apothecaries. In 1645, a shop opened up which sold coffee beans, and it was not long before coffee spread beyond Venice to other parts of Italy. There were regulations which protected the apothecary trade of coffee in Venice, which may explain Italy's delay in opening its first cafe in 1683. Venice's first coffee shop took on the name after which drink it sold, cafe. Cafes quickly took off in Venice over the next decade, becoming a place of intellectualism as well as a place of gambling by Venice's elite. Coffee swept across Italy to Verona, Milan, and Turin. Italian coffee houses were usually elegant buildings, and those in St. Mark's Square would be referred to by Napoleon as the best drawing rooms in Europe. In 1759, Coffee officials began enforcing a cap of 204 cafes, although this limit was broken within four years of its creation. In 1720, Café à la Venezia or Café of the Triumphant Venice, opened its doors. This café was very elegant, acting as a popular place for both Italian and international high society members to gather together. The cafe was renamed Cafe Florian after the original owner, Floriano Franciscani. Another coffee shop opened across from Florian in 1775, Cafe Quadri, which served only Turkish coffee. Quadri had a bad reputation at first, almost leading the owner to bankruptcy, but 
1830, the aristocracy found the cafe to have great coffee and service, as it is still known for to this day. In 1767, the government of Venice prohibited women from entering cafes as orphanages began increasing from the number of children that were born of love affairs, many of which had their start in Venetian cafes. Even with this prohibition, some still found opportunity around St. Mark's Square to sleep with various women. One such man was Giacomo Casanova, who was placed in prison after the state investigators found his activities to be lascivious and anti-religious. Café Florian is the world's oldest coffee house in continuous operation, hosting people like Carlo Godani, Lord Byron, and Charles Dickinson over the years. We will talk about Café Florian and the history of coffee in Italy further next episode, but for now, I want to look at coffee history in France. The French developed an interest in coffee starting in 1669 after a new Turkish ambassador, Suleiman Aga, introduced the French elite to the drink. However, if we believe Franco Petit de la Croix, interpreter for King Louis XIV, coffee was brought to Paris earlier by Melchidech Devano, royal librarian to Louis. Franco tells us in 1657, after Devano returned from a trip to the east, he was gifted some of these new beans. In any case, we know Solomon Aga, Turkish ambassador to Sultan Mehmed IV, visited Paris and brought with him coffee beans. He donated coffee to the royal court and impressed them with coffee, served by waiters in Turkish attire, creating a desire for Turkish culture among Parisians. He was banished from Versailles, Louis' palace, after refusing to bow to the king, but set up a lavish home for himself in Paris, inviting Parisian women from high society to come to his home for elegant coffee ceremonies. In 1672, shortly after Solomon's arrival in Paris, we see a man of Armenian descent by the name of Pascal Rosé set up the first coffee house in Paris. However, coffee did not initially gain such popularity in France like it did in Italy and actually came under attack 10 years after its introduction. French doctors in 1679 wished people would go back to wine and claimed coffee, quote, dried up the cerebrospinal fluid and caused convulsions. The upshot being general exhaustion, paralysis, and impotence, end quote. Another French physician, Sylvester Defoe, wrote a book in response which defended coffee, and by 1696, another French doctor was using coffee as a prescription. While Rosé's attempt at a coffee shop failed, 14 years later, in 1686, we see Café Procope successfully established in Paris by an Italian immigrant to France. This cafe established the tradition of French coffee houses as a place for dramatists, musicians, writers, and great minds alike. The coffee house became the place to get a fortune read through coffee grounds by fortune teller, as well as a place to exchange ideas, leading eventually to the revolutionary ideas and conversations, which led to the French Revolution in 1789. The coffee house created by Francisco Procopio Cotto, a Italian-born man, is the oldest still existing coffee house in Paris to this day. 
It is, however, not the oldest in continuous operation, as the cafe closed in 1872 and did not reopen until the 1920s. Cafe Procope coincided with the so-called Age of Enlightenment, quickly becoming the Parisian hub of intellectualism. It is known as the world's first literary cafe, housing philosophers, writers, artists, and politicians alike for over two centuries. The likes of Voltaire, Rousseau, and Hugo, the birth of the modern encyclopedia by Diderot, revolutionaries such as Robespierre, and great politicians including Benjamin Franklin and Napoleon Bonaparte. French coffeehouse culture was generally one of refinement, being known as academic offices. They were usually well cleaned, heated, and furnished. Part of their popularity was their openness to foreigners as a place of high society, as most other Parisian high society establishments were closed to foreigners. In 1690, shortly after the founding of Café Procope, Marie de Rabunti Chanta wrote of the cappuccino, describing it as, quote, We had the idea of skimming the milk and mixing it with sugar and coffee. It is most lovely. End quote. She also stated her doctor, Dubois, believed coffee had healing properties and could be used to combat a cold, drawing a parallel to past medical and mythological accounts of coffee as having medical properties. In 1710, the French shifted away from the Arab method of boiling coffee beans and began making coffee by grinding it up, putting it into a cloth bag, and pouring boiling water over it to produce brewed coffee, later adding sweetener and milk to their coffee, which became known as milky coffee. The French were responsible for the bourbon strain of coffee trees, which they created after planting seeds for mocha and bourbon. Shifting now to Germany, coffee houses began in Germany by 1670 and were widespread throughout the country by 1721. The drink was debated as to its medical properties, but remained a popular drink still. The great composer Bach even wrote about coffee in his Café Cantata. And Beethoven drank his coffee using 60 coffee beans to brew a single cup. No wonder the man could still write music after going deaf. With that amount of coffee, he was probably seeing sounds and hearing colors. Like in other countries we have already discussed, coffee eventually came into conflict with political interests. This time, it was from Frederick the Great, who in 1777 issued a manifesto putting down coffee and declaring beer to be the great drink of the German people. Following this, four years later, he banned roasting coffee except for government establishments. Did not last forever, though, and coffee was eventually legalized again. At about the same time, coffee reached other Europeans, such as the Dutch and the Scandinavians, shortly after. Next episode, we will continue looking at coffee in the Netherlands and go further into German coffee history. The show is written and produced by me, Eric Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. 
If you would like to contact us, you can message us through our social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, and make sure to share it with your friends, family, coworkers, or even a random person that you don't know. Just walk up to them, no context, mention this podcast. Our closing quote today is by Ellis Lasker Schuler. Secretly, we all think of the cafe as the devil, but what would life be without the devil? Tune in next time as we continue with coffee on its journey through Europe.